The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the household, for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Kathy. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the director of discipleship here at Christ Pres. My wife and I, Tracy, we have two boys. Right now, they're living their best life because uh, it is summer break. Uh, They're very happy because summer break means they don't have to go to school. I've heard both my kids at various times refer to school as prison. (laughs) And when I hear them say such things, I try and tell them, come on, it's not so bad. When I was their age, I went to a high school that literally didn't have a single window in the entire building, not one, that more closely resembled a prison. But it was last year when one of my kids had to take one of many tests having to do with getting into college. It behooves him to do well on this test, so in an effort to prepare him for this test, they offered to administer a practice test. We thought, his mother and I, it would be a good idea for him to take this practice test. My son, however, disliked the idea very much. Why is that? It wasn't the fact that we were asking him to take a practice test, which is bad enough in and of itself, a test that doesn't even count right? It was the fact that this practice test took place on a Saturday. We were asking him to go to school and take a test on a Saturday to add insult to injury Saturday morning. This, to my son, was nothing short of criminal. So when he learned of this plan, let me tell you, he begged, he pleaded, please, no, not this, anything but this. And let me just say, I honestly believe in the days leading up to the practice test, my son went through all five stages of grief. <laughs> Denial. Absolutely. On more than one occasion, on occasion, he said, I'm not going. Anger. Oh, he was very angry. Bargaining like you have no idea. Dad, I will do anything. Depression. Certainly. He didn't say a word to me on the car ride over. Acceptance. To tell you the truth, I'm not sure he ever got there. He still feels betrayed. 
In fact, yesterday, yesterday, this test was over a year ago, and yesterday we were on the lake, we had a little mishap. I had to leave with him and go to the, the uh, urgent care to get his, his chin stitched up. And his mother texted him, said, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And he said, I've been through worse. <laughs> like that time you sent me to school on Saturday. <laughs> Yesterday. Now, here's the reality of the situation. Why do we ask him to do such things? Are we out to make him miserable? No, of course not. And deep down inside, I really think he understands that. Going to school, be it on a Saturday or any other day of the week, is not a task we give our kids because we have nothing better to ask of them. We send them to school as a means to something else. It's a means to something productive and good. And I say this as someone who once believed my parents sent me to a prison called high school, and now I can look back and be glad that I went there. I'm grateful for that windowless brick building. So maybe going to school on a Saturday or any other day of the week, isn't the foe we think it is. Our reading today in 1 Peter, the apostle circles back around once again to the theme of suffering. That's what the whole book is about. He's writing to a group of believers in the early church that were facing persecution on a level for which most of us don't have reference. And he tells the church in verse 12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, Peter's saying that suffering, trials, difficulty, these things are to be expected as a Christian. It comes with the territory. So not only should we not be surprised when we face suffering as Christians, but, but then Peter goes on to say in verse 14, you are blessed in and through it. If we're being honest, much like my son having to go to school on Saturday, we, like him, must stop and ask, why? And not only why, but how. How does this make any sense at all? Lord, I'm suffering. And from what I gather, your word is telling me that it's to be expected and that maybe even it's a good thing. So maybe suffering isn't the foe we think it is. Let's try and iron this out a little bit more. The question we want to ask of the text today is this. If God is good, then why is there suffering? Suffering is bad, right? And if God is good, why does He allow something bad? If God is all-powerful and doesn't keep me from suffering, then can He really be good? Or perhaps He is good, but He has no power over suffering. He can't stop it. And if He's powerless to stop it, is he really God? First of all, let's, for argument's sake, stipulate one thing, and that is if God is really God, that means by definition, he is all-powerful. And if that's the case, then that means he is in control of everything, suffering too. That means he could, at the very least, prevent suffering, but for whatever reason, he chooses not to. Why in the world? If God is in control of everything, why would He allow suffering to persist? And, and do you see the question behind the question? What's the question behind the question? The question is, can we trust God? If He has the power to stop suffering and doesn't stop it, what is He doing? So let's talk about this and, and ask the text three things today. How did suffering start? What purpose does it serve, if any? And then we'll ask the Scriptures what God is doing about suffering. 
how it started, what purpose it serves, and what is God doing about suffering. So, so where did suffering start? To answer that question, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. When we open the first page of the Bible, we can read the account of creation. Another attribute of God that we hold to is that we believe He's eternal. He's without beginning and without end, and He eternally exists in perfect fellowship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And in that perfect fellowship, they initiated creation, and that included the creation of humanity, human beings who are cast in the image of God. And then what happened? Adam and Eve decided to do their own thing. They were told what to do and what was expected of them to remain in fellowship with God, but they decided rather than let God be God, they decided they would try and play the role of God themselves. And from that point on, because Adam, who was your perfect representative, who acted as you would have acted because he decided that he wanted to play the role of God, and he, he veered off from God's perfection, from, from God's design, His perfect design, when you veer away from perfection, you get something that is less than perfect. You get a fractured world. You get a world that doesn't work right. When you have a world that doesn't work right, among the byproducts are pain, wrongdoing, and suffering. Sin entered the world, and, and like a disease, it spread, like a cancer. When I was uh, growing up, I would ask my mom if it was okay to see movies that had the rated R designation, and I would try and justify it by saying, Mom, it's mostly a good movie. It's a good story. It has some bad language in it, yes, and maybe some other stuff. It's just a little bit of bad stuff. Can I watch this movie? And to that she would tell me, how about you go drink some water from the toilet? It's mostly good. checkmate. <laughs> it doesn't take much to break perfection, and the results are devastating. In Romans 5 verse 12, the Apostle Paul tells us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It was through one man that sin and death entered the world, and it is the reason it continues to abound now. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul describes the world as, as groaning in the, in the pains of childbirth. It's a broken world. And this is where it all began, and it continues to remain broken in a state of disrepair. So, if this is where it all began, and now that it's here with us, what are we to make of it? Is it just running wild now? Is suffering just a thing that we have to deal with and it's out of control? Is that what we have in suffering now? Do you remember the, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph with the colorful coat, who was sold off by his brothers. He was hauled off to Egypt, spent several years in prison, forgotten by almost everyone in his world. He reached rock bottom. Eventually, shockingly, through a bizarre set of circumstances, he was elevated to become the second most powerful person in the world. This is not what his brothers imagined would happen to him when they sold him off to a band of traitors. They meant evil for Joseph. They meant harm to Joseph. And eventually, years after they sold him off, they had to face him, and they begged for his forgiveness. And what did he tell them? What he told them begins to unlock our understanding of God's position on suffering. It's not that God's hands are tied when it comes to suffering, but this, what Joseph told his brothers, Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The evil that we produce, 
the suffering that comes as a result of the world that we fractured. What you meant for evil, I will use for good. I will reweave it. I'll recreate it for good. What you meant for evil, I will work into something good. How does that work? Is it possible that he lets suffering continue because some way, somehow, it serves a divine purpose? Does suffering serve a purpose? This is our second point. Does suffering actually serve a purpose, a good purpose? This is what Peter is telling us in our reading today. He links suffering to rejoicing, glory, and blessing. How does that work? If you don't believe in God, then no. Suffering serves no purpose. Because if you don't believe in God, then everything is random. We're all just living on this great big ball, cascading through the universe, and one day we'll all die. But if you do believe in God, then you believe in a God of order. You believe in a God of purpose. That means you believe in a God who gives meaning and significance to every single thing that happens. That nothing happens for no reason. Yes, even suffering. Suffering isn't therefore just a useless byproduct of the fallen world. Rather, it serves a specific redemptive purpose. Many of you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is. She's, a, she's an author and a radio host. And when she was just 17 years old, having misjudged the depth of the water, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and suffered a spinal fracture and became paralyzed from the shoulders down. And she's been confined to a wheelchair ever since. She's 73 years old now. She is certainly someone who could say, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? Of what purpose is suffering? Instead, this is what she says. I always say that in a way, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know that's not biblically correct, but if I were able, I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new glorified body. And I will then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. <laughs> Her point is affirmed by the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Corinthians twelve nineteen, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So what purpose does suffering serve? It's not for nothing. It has an effect on us. It produces something in us. It reveals in us our weakness. And then we have a comprehension of that weakness, which, which then draws us near to the infinite source of strength. This is just one way. This is just one way the Lord holds you closely. Do you know how the Lord pulls you close? Listen to this. This is Ecclesiastes 7, 2-4. The author Solomon is contrasting wisdom and folly, and he says this, maybe not what you would expect. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. What? What? It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting? Sorrow is better than laughter, says who? Let me read for you something by R.C. Sproul, who wrote about this passage in his book called Surprised by Suffering. He said this, 
We may go to the house of mirth, to a party where we have fun, kick back, have a good time, and enjoy entertainment. Parties are not all that serious. We don't have to be contemplative in order to enjoy ourselves there. Certainly, there's a time to laugh and a time to dance, a time to celebrate, a time to have a party. But how much do we learn in those circumstances? Times of mirth do very little for the good of our souls. However, when we go to the house of mourning, we go to an environment where our hearts can be equipped with transcendent wisdom. There's a pithy saying that says God sometimes puts us on our backs to give us a chance to look up. It sometimes seems that it is only when suffering, pain, or grief invades our lives that we begin to be sober and direct our thinking towards the things of God in a significant way. The house of mourning has a way of prompting us to do that. In other words, if I could summarize it another way, there's a healing nature to suffering. There's a healing nature. Pain, sorrow, and grief can turn the believer's eyes to the Father in a way that blessing and abundance cannot. Only from a place of deficiency can we begin to contemplate and appreciate the holy nature of God and the miracle of having Him bring us near to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. But is that it? Isn't there an easier way to accomplish this? If if it's His objective to draw us near to Him, is suffering really the only way to do that? Is suffering the only way to strengthen our faith? It's not the only way. But understand this, and remember this each time you find yourself in the midst of suffering. Christ Himself suffered. We suffer because He suffered. And He asked us to join in Him, join Him in that. His suffering is redemptive. Ours is not. But in our suffering, we, as Peter tells us, bear witness to the glory of His suffering. We bear witness to the glory of His suffering. So, of what purpose is suffering? Yes, to strengthen our faith. To what end? To the end that it makes us and molds us into the likeness of Jesus and declares the glory of the suffering of Jesus. But listen, there's still more to the story. Yes, there's a purpose to suffering. Yes, it strengthens our faith. Yes, it makes us more like Christ. But what about this? What, what, what's he doing about suffering? What's he doing about suffering? And this is our third point. In our message today and all throughout Peter, he points beyond the moment. He points to what awaits the one who entrusts their soul to the faithful creator. Back in chapter 1, he underscored this idea in verse 8 by saying, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter's telling us to look ahead. Look far ahead. Set your gaze on the one you do not now see, but will one day see in glory. We have two dogs at home, and uh, before we got these dogs, our sons promised that they would help take care of the dogs and take part in the responsibilities that come along with the ownership of dogs. False. As many of you know, yes, Kids love dogs, and they have a great affection for them, but the burden of the dog's care largely falls on the parent. And for those of you considering getting a pet for your child, you've been warned. So a few years ago, I decided to conduct a little behavioral experiment with my kids. That's one of the reasons you have kids. (laughs) To prove the point I'm about to make here, my kids were, shall we say, reluctant and even claimed to be unable to clean up after the dogs. So here was my experiment. 
One afternoon, I said to them, okay, guys, I need you to go help me out here. I need you to go to the the backyard with all the doggy waste bags and partake of cleaning up after the dogs. Go clean up all you can find. My request was not met with joy. They had long, sad faces. But then I said, thus begins the experiment, okay, guys, I meant to tell you, I'll pay you $5 for every item you find and clean up. Yes, that is excessive. The experiment, however. Because suddenly, there was a change of attitude. What followed more resembled an Easter egg hunt than what they were actually doing? I saw that one first. It's mine, one said to the other. So not only did my experiment prove that they were able to do the task, but it also proved something else. What you believe to be true about your future has a direct and immediate impact on how you handle your present circumstances. What you believe to be true about your future will affect how you perceive your current circumstances. Peter's telling the sufferer to set your gaze on the one you don't now see, but believe in nonetheless. Set your gaze on the outcome of your faith, the finished product. This passage from Revelation 21, this is how the story ends. This is how of all of history comes to an end. We're told by the Apostle John, who has a message to Christians that is not unlike the message that, that Peter has, a word to Christians who will soon be facing unspeakable suffering. Revelation 21, 4-5, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Do you see what he's saying here? Both the apostles, John and Peter, are telling us what to believe about our present reality. They're telling us that, that, we will, that what will become of our present suffering. What are they saying? If we look at another account from John in his gospel in the 11th chapter, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this account. It's the account where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We learn at the start of the chapter that a friend of Jesus named Lazarus was very ill. His sisters Mary and Martha went to send word to Jesus. Jesus, the one you love is ill. Now, why did they do that? Why did they send word to Jesus that Lazarus was ill? Because they knew what he could do. They knew he has the ability to do something about Lazarus' illness. Do you see what they're asking Jesus without asking the question directly? Jesus, the one you love is suffering. Do you care? Can we trust you? What are you going to do about this? Jesus is a good distance away, but if he gets going now, maybe he'll get there in time to do something about it. So what does he do? He stays two days longer. What? But Jesus, your friend Lazarus, he's dying. Then Jesus says, hey, I've got an idea. Let's go to Judea. And and the disciples all but tell him next, are you crazy, Jesus? We were just there. That's where they tried to kill you, you remember? And by the way, your friend Lazarus, he's dying. Do you see, this isn't unlike suffering of our own. Jesus, I'm suffering. Why are you allowing this suffering? You see me suffering. You see that I'm in pain. And Jesus, you're not doing anything. You're not moving. Shouldn't you be doing something now? Put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Martha. They're suffering too. It's not just Lazarus. They see their brother. They see he's about to die. And the one person they know who can do something about it seems to be dragging his feet. Jesus, you could snap your fingers and take this all away, yet he doesn't. 
After disciples protest, Jesus sees them and tells them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but, but, his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And then he tells them, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. For your sake, for your faith, the suffering has gone this far for your sake, for the strengthening of your faith. When Jesus got to be about two miles away from where Lazarus was, he gets word that he's been dead for, for four days. That's, that's good and dead. Martha meets him there and tells him, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus, you could have stopped this. You could have stopped this suffering, and you didn't. Jesus, what are you doing about suffering? And Jesus tells her, oh, Martha, your brother will rise again. He continues, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now listen to what Martha says. She says, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Isn't that curious? She believes. She says the right answer. She has the right information. Jesus doesn't need to convince her of anything more. She believes. But Jesus isn't satisfied with you just knowing. He's not satisfied with you just having head knowledge. In your suffering, He's pulling you close and telling you to fix your gaze upon what awaits you. You know how the story goes from here. Spoiler alert, Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus will weep at the tomb of Lazarus, angry at death. He shakes his fists at death and then raises Lazarus from the dead. He's alive. Lazarus lives. He did it. And what did he do? Yes, this is certainly a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do at his own resurrection, but did you notice this? Jesus said, everyone who believes in me shall never die. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but guess what? Eventually he died again. He probably lived several more years after the incident, and then after some time, probably got old and died. What was the point of that? Why raise Lazarus from the dead if he's only going to die again later? Because maybe Jesus is trying to tell us something here. Maybe Jesus is telling us something of where all this suffering is headed. Maybe he's giving us a preview of what's to become of all suffering. Maybe it's this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In this moment here with Lazarus, th this is what Jesus is telling us. Yes, there is suffering now. And yes, I have power over this vile intruder we call death. And yes, I will silence death. But I won't just silence death. I'm going to undo it. I'm going, to, I'm going to make you new again. I'm going to unwind the clock of sin's curse. I'm going to reverse sin's curse. And what was made wrong, I'm going to reverse and make it right. I'm going to make all things new again. Do you see what this means? It means, yes, he allows suffering to occur, but he's going to undo it. And somehow, your future glory will be better for having gone through the suffering. Your future glory will be better for having been through the suffering than if you hadn't been through it at all. 
C.S. Lewis once explained it like this. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and even turn that agony into a glory. Agony turned into glory. This is what Peter is telling us, that we are most like Christ when we glorify God in our suffering. This is it. This is what he's doing about suffering. Remember when, when Christ's sufferings were completed? When he was raised and appeared to his disciples, this is Christ. This is the glorified Christ. The Christ who defeated sin and death. And when he appeared to the disciples, what did he do? What did he say to Thomas? He said, here, here, touch my wounds. Here, put your hand right here. Put your hand on my wound right here on the side. He led him to his scars. Jesus had scars. He had scars. This is a glorified Christ in a resurrected, glorified body. He has scars. Wouldn't a scar be an imperfection? Wouldn't those wounds be cleaned up by the one who can raise himself from the dead and put death back in its bottle? Why would he leave the scars? Because those scars of suffering were revealed as marks of glory. What will he do with your present suffering? Your present suffering will be made into marks of glory. Your present suffering will be made into glory just as it was for him. This is what he's doing about it. This is what he's doing with your suffering. He will undo it and make it into glory. Do you see this? He's not passive with suffering. He's actively doing something with it and about it. Let me close with this final thought. Whatever you believe about God and suffering, whatever it is that you conclude, there's one thing you can't say. You can't say that God is indifferent to it. You can't say that He doesn't care about suffering. Why? Because these tables remind us that He placed Himself in the middle of our suffering. When he saw our suffering, there was only one way to fix it. There was only one way to unwind and reverse sin's curse. That one way was to put himself in the middle of it. He took the punishment that was meant for us. He placed it on his shoulders, and he gave us his righteousness so that we could be at peace with God, so that we could be declared righteous. He wasn't indifferent to our suffering. He took action against it and placed himself in the middle of it so that we could be restored, so that we could see a glorious end to all suffering. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing with us. Thank you that you didn't leave us to suffer in our sin and die in it, but you have worked and, and gave of yourself to restore us. Make us new and rejoice. Let us rejoice in your glory forever. As we walk through suffering, help us to remember that Jesus Christ suffered for our sake, and we get to partake in it and are being made like him through it. Help us to remember, just as we died in Christ for our sin, we will also be raised with him in glory. Thank you, Father, for your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.